1: A lot of people get into that mindset of, when things are great, everyone has that confidence, and that ego, when things are not great, it's not my fault, somebody else's fault. I think as a real entrepreneur, it's all you. It's like Whether you succeed or fail, it's on you. You have to make it right, you have to fix it, you have to figure it out. Having that mentality will get you so much farther in life. This can't be it.
0: There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No, if you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey everybody and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host Jerome. We, we headed south. We took 95 south and we went down to the Miami area and I got my man Jeremy Parker in with me today. You're in for a treat. Jeremy, welcome in brother.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: Man, you were telling me you get ready to go to a playoff game, Knicks versus the Heat. Life's pretty good after an exit, I would guess.
1: Not bad. You know, money is not everything, I'll tell you that, but it makes things a little bit easier for sure.
0: So let's run down the backstory, man. Did you start out in corporate or are you an entrepreneur out of high school? How did this go?
1: I was, a, I was actually a filmmaker in college. So I went to Boston University. I was a, a documentary filmmaker. When I was 18 years old, I made this movie that ended up winning the Vail Film Festival. So I was 18 years old on the top of the mountain in Vail, Colorado. And I remember the next day after the Vail Film Festival, there was like this quote unquote celebrity brunch, if you will. Half the room were these like major celebrities that you've all heard of. Half the room were more struggling artists. And I had like this, I remember like an internal gut check. Like number one, do I love making movies? And number two, am I that good? Like the two questions kept you know repeating in my head. And honestly, I didn't think I was that great. And, and I didn't think I want to make this my career. So got back to college. I had another year to go, finished, finished school. And then I had Really, no work experience. You know, I worked jobs here and there, but I know like real career knowledge. I was a filmmaker, so out of college, I started my first business, and not because I knew I wanted to start a business. I didn't necessarily know what to start. I just wanted to learn as much as possible. So I started a t-shirt company called Tees and Tats. Horrible name, but it was like a tattoo apparel t-shirts. And I thought, worst comes to worst, the company fails. I'll learn how to build a website. I'll learn how to do marketing, PR. I learned how to design a product. I learned all the different aspects of starting a business. And I would probably figure out what I was good at or what I enjoyed or what I didn't like. And that set me up. I just had like moderate success, some failures, some bigger successes, some failures, some bigger successes. So it's just been like striving constantly for the last, you know, 15 years or so as an entrepreneur.
0: So, I mean, you just kind of said it so casually. I won the film festival at 18. Yeah. And then I just walked away from film.
1: Yeah. It was a weird, it was a weird thing. And people looked at me like, what are you talking about? Like, this is amazing. But I just didn't feel, I didn't feel like it was necessarily using my skill set for what I want to create or what I want to build. And I had a, as an entrepreneur, you have to have some confidence in yourself and you have to have like an extraordinary level of confidence, like beyond just normal. It's not normal to start a business. It's never normal. Like to start a company and to just like dive into the blue ocean, you have no idea what you're going to make of it. There's a lot of reasons why startups don't work. Like, and I've even with swag, I've seen so many ups and downs in swag and, and companies before swag. Like, I had companies I spent three years on that just never took off and they failed. And I spent three years of my time being obsessed with and, and like waking up every day at 7 a.m. and working just as hard as swag was. And it didn't work out. And you could see the ups and the downs. But every startup experience I've had, I've learned something from it and I've taken it to the next one and I've gotten better, you know? And I think just, entrepreneurship is not like a get rich quick type of scheme. It's like, it's a lifetime goal. You know, when people say like swag.com launched in 2016 and we got acquired in 2021. Wow. It's amazing what you guys built in such a short period of time. And you guys exit. I look at it as like, I've been doing this for 12 plus years before that. No one knew about, or they had the failures and I, and I wouldn't have been able to be successful if I didn't have those early failures. So I just think it's like a, it's a lifetime sport if you will. For sure.
0: So In the t-shirt business, I guess we go there. We might go further back. You're chief everything officer. Yeah. How'd you figure out like the problem to solve for your clients? And how'd you know that there was a need for that? Because you said it was a bad name, but like
1: how'd you know? It was a bad name and it frankly wasn't a great business either. I didn't know what I wanted to do or what I was good at. And I thought t shirts made sense because you could they're tangible. People want t shirts. And I could build an online site where you could sell them and I could make them really high in price. So the, the t-shirt company was called Tees and Tats, $250 t-shirts. Very, very expensive t-shirts. Each one was hand-signed and numbered by the artist. And he was a world-famous tattoo artist. And they designed these really cool tattoo graphic stuff on the back of the shirts. So nothing in the front. You could wear a suit jacket. Looks really nice, really high quality. You take it off, there's like a party in the back. And the, the idea was just like kind of... it was. Trying to be fun and cool. And, and we actually did re- really great. We were selling a lot of these t shirts. I was going hand to hand, door to door sales, getting these boutiques. And I launched it in 20, 2007. So take your audience back to 2007. This is like right when the recession hit. So we launched two months before the recession. As you can imagine, people are not buying $250 t shirts when they can't you know, support their families and buy food. So I actually, it's kind of funny. I came up with a market relating pricing model. So basically, I tied the prices of our t-shirts to the prices of Dow Jones. So if the Dow dropped, if the stock price dropped, they would get a discount on their t-shirt price. And it was a little gimmicky, but I wrote this idea to Mark Cuban. It was you know, obviously Mark Cuban, famous entrepreneur, but he had a blog called Blog Maverick that as I was becoming an entrepreneur, I was reading Blog Maverick every single week because I was trying to learn as much as possible and soak it all in. And he responded within 10 minutes. It was like the most, I didn't think it was him. He responded right away, said, I love your story. Do you mind if I write about it? And he wrote about me in this blog about like the innovation and being creative and being an entrepreneur who's not willing to die. And that got me some sales. And that was seen by AdAge, a really large magazine. They ended up writing about me. And it's just kind of set me on the path of learning all the different aspects of the business and meeting a lot of, frankly, a lot of people. It ultimately got me introduced to a guy named Elliot Pizer. Elliot Pizer is the CEO of a large company called MV Sport. And MV Sport happens to be in the promotional product space. So when I was 22 years old, I learned the ins and the outs of the promo industry and the challenges. And I did that business. I worked under his company, Umbrella, as a new startup. And I started this company called Vote for Art at the time. And the idea was, what if we could partner with different major universities and college campuses and minor league baseball teams, and we could do graphic design contests where the winning design would be sold on the t-shirt at the company bookstore, at the school's you know, stadium. And we started launching this, you know, 30, 40, 50 major universities across the country. And I was, I was frankly learning how to do production. I was learning e-commerce, but I was really more learning about inner workings of the promotional, you know, the promotional product space. Like frankly, what I'm at, what swag.com does today. So it was just all, every single thing I've done just kind of like leveled me up and I've learned. And then after both for art, I did it for three years. I worked with my brother on a startup called Tip Media. And Tip Media, basically, we, we noticed that all these YouTube stars were making no money living in their parents' basement, but they were getting tens of millions of views. Now, it's like common knowledge. Mr. Beast makes millions of dollars. But back in the day, you know, rewind yourself 12 years ago, these guys had millions of views, more than American Idol, but they were making no money. And if you watch American Idol, they're drinking that, that Coke can, and they're getting paid by Coke, but these YouTube stars weren't getting that. So what we did is we said, what if we partner with the biggest brands in the world, the State Farms, the Colgate's, the Verizons, and get their products into the YouTube videos and make these YouTube stars millionaires? And we would take a piece by being that middleman. And we ended up doing it and had like amazing success. Like some of these videos we made, ten million views online. We got the the YouTube star hundreds of thousands of dollars. We were able to make hundreds of thousands by be, being that middleman. Like. It was kind of like buying oil before people knew how valuable oil was, right? And then that led me to the next thing. It's like, it's a constant, like, you do something and you, you introduce you to somebody. Right after that, we ended up partnering up with Jesse Itzler, who I don't know if you're familiar with Jesse Itzler. I am. He was an entrepreneur, Marquis Jed, Zico Coconutwater, me and my, bro, my brother. After we did that startup, partnered up with him. We moved into his office. We worked at his office for three years with him. We started buying up the rights to major celebrities, Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds. So we were basically this liaison between the major celebrities now and the Colgate's, Verizon's and all these things. And that company was actually acquired by a publicly traded company. I was 25 years old. So like all these random interactions that led me to one thing, one thing, one thing. You know, I was a, I was a startup founder who, who actually had an exit at 25 and that was unbelievable. And then right after that, I'm like, nothing could touch me. And I started another business. Three years, I ended up failing, right? And it's kind of like, it brings you back down to earth. And that company was called Vouch. It was a social networking app based on what you vouch, your favorite things. We had hundreds of thousands of users. We had big celebrities on the platform from Pitbull and Rev Run and 50 Cent. It just never materially took off. And ultimately after that, I started Swag.com. So like, that's why I say it's a life sport. It's like, there's never like one end goal and that's it and you stop. It's like constantly trying to improve yourself and get better and better and better.
0: So you mentioned The first exit. Was that your first exposure to somebody exiting or that you could exit or a business? Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never even
1: thought of it. Honestly, I was never, I was so new. I mean, 25 years old, I just became an entrepreneur three years earlier. I was so new into the mindset of exiting or even thought that was a possibility. I was frankly looking to build a business for the long haul. And this publicly traded company came to us and they wanted to acquire us. I was 25. It was less than a year after we launched the business. And it was like, get paid millions of dollars to get acquired. they that you're 25 years old. It's, just, it's like life changing. So yeah, I was definitely all my friends. It seemed like, it seemed like a fairy tale
0: or, or movie. You yep. needed your own documentary guy. Yeah. So did someone help you through the first exit? Like I know, like you were partnered with somebody kind of working underneath yep. them, but like, how did it actually, the transaction consummate?
1: Like how did it work? Yeah. So I was fortunate because Jesse Itzler, who who you know, was involved. So it was me, my brother, and Jesse Itzler. We were the three co-founders of this startup that got acquired. And Jesse's had a lot of experience with getting his businesses acquired. You now, he started Marquee Jet. It got bought by Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway. He started Zico Coconut Water, got bought by Coca-Cola. So he had just a lot of experience, and he knew you know who would be the right buyers for us. So we were introduced to Jesse and he kind of guided the whole process, you know, beginning to end. It was it was one of these like surreal moments. This swag.com, it was a completely different experience. You know, when we got acquired, it was over a year and a half of talking to the acquirer. It wasn't like as quick. Tip Media, when we sold that, you I was 25 years old. It was like a two-month process from like offer to closing. That's very, it's very rare. It's very, very rare. And I think because the amount was much less, it was, you know, around $2 million exit price. Swag.com was was. Far greater is a lot more details that have to be worked out and, and, and processed. So every deal I think is just different. Like there's no, there's no like exact way it's going to work. I learned so, a lot from my early acquisition and I took some of that to selling swag, but you know, I've learned a lot from the swag acquisition that next time I'll probably be better at the whole process.
0: So what was one or two of the biggest lessons you took from the first acquisition into the second one?
1: Yeah, I think the first acquisition. It was a, to negotiate heavy on up the front, you know, and I, and I think I made a similar mistake with swag in general, but with swag, it ended up working out and it was, it was ultimately right. The first thing we trusted a hundred percent the acquirer and we, we came in to like naive a little bit. Like you have to be protected a little bit more in terms of, you know, the number you're going to get. A lot of acquirers come in with the price and by the end, the prices looks very, very different than the agreed upon price. And I never thought that I'm just, I'm a naive kid. I just thought. They made the price. We agreed on the price, and that's it. It's it could completely change, you know, depending on a million things that they could. And with Swag. dot always
0: down, not in your favor. It doesn't oh, change never, in your favor. Ne-
1: never in your favor. With Swag. dot com, that did not happen. Our, our, the the acquirers who 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 bought Swag.com Custom Inc. They're amazing. They're a great company, and I still work there. I'm I'm running Swag. dot com under Custom Inc. But I think just in general, I made the mistake of giving so much information early on before having a price that made sense. Like I was. In the, and it worked out because they're, they happen to be great partners and they were not taking advantage of. And they really wanted to have these conversations to learn about the business and and figure out, do they even want to buy us? I've heard from a lot of friends who've gone through the process. There's a lot of people who do the digging early on, want to get as much, much information as you possible. And they never ultimately, you know, make you the offer. And then they put you in a really weird position where you're talking to them for a year and then you're building it up in your head of what ultimately could happen. And then it's like, there's not even a real offer there, and it, you could be kind of like a gut punch. And frankly, usually you get bought not when the company is failing, but usually when the company is doing well, and you need it to keep doing well. Otherwise, the deal could always fall through. So even when they make you an offer, it's it means nothing. Like if the sales fell off a, a cliff, the, the offer's not there. Like they're not bound to the offer. So it's like you're doing multiple jobs. You're doing the job of the relationship with the acquirer, figuring out all the details and the nuance, drafting the contract, and doing all everything again, putting the books together and your numbers, and making diligence as smooth as possible. And you can't tell your team because you're not supposed to tell your team. The team can't know that this is happening on the side. And you have to grow just as fast as you were beforehand. It was the year of the acquisition for us was insanely exhausting. It was you know seven a.m. to eleven o'clock at night every single night for a year. And if it didn't work out, I mean it really sets you back. So you have to be really, really mindful of that and be willing to gamble it and say, you know what, if I'm going through this process, it might not work out. And it might be okay if it does it, if it falls through.
0: I think you have to be happy to keep it when you're going through that so that you don't get desperate totally. and do things you shouldn't totally. do with the exit. So how did you establish valuation? You mentioned the swag was a, a lot bigger exit. Yep. How did you establish valuation? Did you have somebody helping you on this one? Or no, no
1: we, we did it ourselves. I basically how I did it, because I didn't know. I didn't know how to value a business. You know, our industry promotional products is there's not that many public companies that are in the promo space to even benchmark it against. It's very tough. It's a very tough industry to figure out what it costs. What I did is I interviewed a lot of bankers and I got a sense from them based on the numbers that we had and our growth rate. What would they be happy getting us if we hired them? How much money can they get us? And it was interesting that they all kept falling in in a a relatively similar space. You know, Mm -hmm. with us, it could be $5 million more, $5 million less, right? They're all in, in this mindset of what they think they could get. But if you use a banker, you have to give about 5% away. So I figured if I could get to that same number that all the bankers are coming to me with and keep the 5%, that that's a good outcome. So we, we were able to get that number. Wow.
0: Man, you went out there commando style. You're like still team yep. six with it. So yeah, how and, did
1: you? And I'll tell you the reason. The reason was if it didn't work out, I was totally cool. You know, we were growing 100%. Like I had so much leverage because we didn't need to sell. There was nothing forcing me to sell. I was happy. I wasn't burnt out. Like all the reasons to sell there's like fight with your co-founder, right? We ha- I have a great relationship with my co-founder. You're absolutely burnt out. We were only doing it for 6 years at this point. I had a lot of energy to go, right? I wasn't burnt out. The company was growing 100% every year. We were getting better. That's you know people are slowing down, they want to sell. We had a huge pipeline of features to make our site even better. We had a vision for where we could take this. So there's nothing forcing me to. The only reason why I would sell is because it would materially change my life only at a price that I was willing to do it for. If it, if it fell below that price, I wasn't willing to do it. So
0: <laughs> materially
1: changed my life. So yeah. you get the check, yeah. right? Or is it a wire? It was a wire. It was, well, part of the deal for me was majority in cash and smaller percentage in their, in their, in their stock. So for me, the cash came in, was, uh, I remember it was on Monday, I believe. And uh, it was just, it didn't, it didn't feel real. Honestly, it, it doesn't. It doesn't feel real. It's like there's no difference. I'm not going to spend the money. Like I'm not going to do anything with it, right? There's no difference on a day to day. I mean, I'm not a spender, a spendy type of guy in general. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be buying a Ferrari now. I, I just it never even crossed my mind to do those kind of things. But it was just like you can start thinking about your future, right? Like, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're struggling. You're most, you're more often than not struggling until you're not struggling. I mean, that's pretty much the, the game, like you're signing up for years and years of heartache and heartbreak and stress for the hope that one day you don't have those heartbreaks and stress and you actually make it. And it pays for all those years of stress. That, I think that's one of the things. And also, frankly, I'm just an entrepreneur by nature. I like building things. So whether it came with money or didn't, I just, I like creating something out of nothing and seeing it come to life. So it was more of like a challenge and a game for me more than the money, honestly. But when you do look at the amount and you're thinking, I have two kids, like, they don't have to worry about college. They don't have to worry about food. They, like, we're totally cool. I could take vacations. I, I don't have to worry about stuff. On a day-to-day, it kind of just alleviates any kind of pressure. So totally, it's that feeling. It's more of like the, the, the feeling of not having to worry, I would say. So
0: when I heard you on another interview, the reason why I reached out is because of what you bought, right? Because yeah. you said, I'm not going to buy a Ferrari, but it's important that this, this materially changes my life. Yeah. What would you buy, man?
1: I First, second, and I'm in the first month. First month, I got nothing. Second month, I ended up buying myself a bicycle because I live on the beach and I want to be fit. I want to be healthy. And that's something that you can't, you have to earn that. You have to earn health, right? It's not a given to you. You can't buy it either. You can't buy it. It's like, it's, but this is your life. This is the one body we have. So I wanted to be fit. I figured I'd buy a bike. So I bought like a $650, $700 bicycle just for the, like the and that's it. Beach that's really, cruiser? Yeah. One of those beach cruisers, a little bit, they have a little like the pricklies so they can actually like ride on the sand. But it's a paddle. It's not like electric. It's just like totally like, it's, called, it's made by a company called Giant. It's not like a, a great bike, but there's a bike store in my area and they sold Giants. They only had Giant bikes and I bought it and it was, and it's been great. I mean, but there's other things you buy, not like things materially, but like I go to restaurants now. And I don't think about the, the, I don't look at the, like the the menu and, and I'm not going to order this because it's $5 more. Like that's the only real life change on a day to day, I would say. So
0: I just want to make sure that the listeners get this. This was the largest amount of money that you've ever had in your possession in your yeah. life at one time yeah. when, the, when that wire hits, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. And you buy a bite. Yeah. Not even in the first month. Like, it wasn't burning a hole in your pocket. It's just like, okay, it's there.
1: Yeah, no, nothing changed in my life. Literally, not, the only, I mean, I gave to charity. You know, there's certain things that you want to do when you make money and you're like, okay, no one deserves anything. Right. Like like, no one deserves this type. No one deserves this type of money, really. I mean, you you could deserve something because you build it and you earn it for sure. I'm a capitalist for sure. But first thing I I thought, I'm like, let me just give some charity. So that was the first thing. And then I'm like, let me buy something for myself. And I didn't really need anything. Right. I'm not like a jewelry guy. I just thought, let me buy a a bicycle. That was really it. I mean, it's not like I bought my wife a piece of jewelry for her because she likes that type of stuff. Yeah. But if you don't like it, like what's, what's the point of wasting money or spending money on stuff? You don't really, it doesn't really move the needle. I thought about buying a watch for myself to commemorate it, but I have a watch. I didn't really think I needed it. It just felt like it's, it would be wasteful to spend if you don't really need it or want it.
0: Wow. So did you celebrate in any way?
1: Yeah, totally. I, I celebrated with my family, but like a dinner, you know, like a, a nice dinner, family get together, some friends, we went out for a dinner, but like nothing, like nothing more than you do for a birthday. You know, it wasn't like a. We didn't need to just spend to spend. I'm, I'm, I'm a married guy. I have two kids. It was like, do I go clubbing? Like, that? none of my friends like that anymore. Like, what are we doing? Like, if this happened like 10 years ago, sure, I would have acted very differently, right? I probably would have bought something stupid or, or I would have gone out. I would have got a table. I would have done the whole experience. Or I don't know. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't move the needle for me.
0: It's not exciting anymore. No. So, the feeling of conquest yeah. after you the exit, how long did that last?
1: Probably a day. Yeah, I'm telling. If you if you're if you're doing entrepreneurship for the glory of it, it's it's hard. I don't know. I think it's it's, it's like it, it maybe maybe it's just me, but most people I know, it's not, I, it's, not it's not it. I mean, I, we sold. There's like a day it was like we I, Forbes wrote about us. So I mean, that was pretty cool that Forbes wrote the whole article and I had a picture of me and my co-founder. And I was like, whoa, this is like really happening. And and then that same day we got the money and it was really exciting. And then the next morning I just woke up and I'm like, well, I'm not really where I want to be fully in life, you know, in terms of my career. I want, there's a lot more I want to build. I have, I want swag.com to grow a lot more. I have some other ideas that I want to build even within the swag space. As you see on my hat, swag space, there's some ideas we want to build, but there's, we're just getting started and I'm young. I'm 37 years old. So I figured that I don't want to lose that momentum and that, that feeling of, of the hustle. Because like, if you, if you just get like lackadaisical and you step back, then, then you're just like living off of something you did in the past. And who wants to live off that? You want to, always be bettering yourself in every aspect and growing and constantly having that feeling like when you climb a mountain, it's not just getting to the top. There's like there's tears to it. Like you get to one point and you feel like you're good and then you look up and there's actually more to climb. You climb there and you feel good and you maybe go down a couple of notches and life is just a mountain, right? Like otherwise it gets boring. So you want to keep building and growing and pushing yourself and just trying to better yourself in all aspects of your life. That's kind of how I think about it.
0: A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, AKA the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So why was it important to give to charity for you?
1: I grew up in a household that always gave to charity, you know, like, if you're given something, it's it's important to take care of others who are less fortunate, and I just thought that that was really important from like the moment, like right, we got acquired in November fifth before the year ended. You know, I wanted to make sure I gave, and I did certain things that could help a lot of people. Just important to me, it wasn't like it wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't to be like you know name on the wall. It was just like if I could help, it, you know, I better help, right? If I can't, if I used to give when I didn't have money a percentage, but now I have more money. Let me give a bigger percentage. Let me make a bigger impact. And that to me is important. Like we have one life. We want to have a good life. We want to be respected. We want to feel like we're helping people. We don't, you know, don't want to be selfish. And that was, that was a big, that was very important for me and my wife when we discussed it. And and that's what we felt like we wanted to spend our money on.
0: How'd you pick where you, how'd you pick the amount you gave and who you gave it to?
1: Yeah, the good question. These are charities I've known beforehand. Mostly they, they were children charities, you know, people, kids with like cancer or diseases. One of the charities was for camp to pay for, you know, 20 kids to go to camp who have, you know, debilitating diseases. One mm-hmm. of them was for kids, an orphanage to help build out a wing of the orphanage so that more kids could stay and they could expand. How many kids could they actually have? One of them was for an ambicycle, you know, for places where you can. This actually was in Israel. It's, a very, it's called Unite Hatzalah. They're an amazing organization in Israel. And basically what they have is instead of these big ambulances that typically when somebody gets like in a car crash or someone you know, has like an issue or, or any, any type of issue, it takes about three minutes for an, for an ambulance to get to the person. And by that point, they could be dead. They could, there could be a lot of things that could happen. So there's like an ambicycle, which is like a motorcycle, with an ambulance built on the back, which gets to them within a minute. So it literally the difference between a minute and like three to six minutes saves someone's life. So we just, we bought an ambicycle and just different things that we feel like could either make an immediate impact to save someone's life or mostly children and charity related. Right,
0: Really cool. So you're making the the point that I like to make a lot, but you're not saying it the way I say it. So for the sake of being as awesome, like we found most people are chasing the wrong F and, I personally don't believe it's their fault. Like the American dream is all about creating financial freedom and we're programmed for decades to chase it, mm-hmm. but it isn't until like you get there, you realize like, that's not it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And like a lot of my private clients, they come to me asking, what was it all for? Is this really it? And what now? And when they're asking like those questions, what I think they're really looking for is the other F, that F being fulfillment. hmm and, you know, they're in this new place. They're struggling with all the, the doubts that come with the other side of the exit. And they're moving through this thing we call the founder's exit paradox, where they have feelings similar to an existential crisis, mm-hmm. but where they're questioning like the meaning and the purpose of their life. But it's different because it was triggered by a major accomplishment. Usually people, when they go through the existential crisis, somebody passes away or they lose something that was really important mm-hmm. to them. And it's, it sounds like you'd already had that part figured out. Like I, you said it earlier, like, nope, we're, we're not owed anything, right? And you got to earn your health and you're, you're walking up the, these six levels that we work through, where it's like, you got to make a difference. Like the money isn't to be blown, it's to be invested for a lasting legacy, right? And making other people's lives better. And that, it sounds like that's just part of, the way you were brought up,
1: Are- I'm very, very lucky. I was, I grew up. My dad's an entrepreneur as well. He's had some successes and failures and ups and downs, and and I just, I've seen what's important in life. I was, I'm telling you, I have a very different perspective because I know money is not everything. I know that in my bones, and and I don't do it for the money. I do it because, as I said before, I'm a, I'm a entrepreneur. I do it because I like to build something. and I like to challenge myself, and I like to create something of value for customers and and for my employees and build a great place for people to feel like happy and working. And that, that gives me fulfillment and making the money at the end of the day was just, it was like a bonus, if you will, but it's, it wasn't everything. And it was never my priority. Just like I'm going to start something else. I'm sure I'm going to start many businesses and I'm going to have some failures and some growth, you know, some wins. And, and it's just about life. It's about like learning yourself and getting better every day and in every aspect, you know, Getting more patient, getting more creative, being you know, a harder worker, overcoming obstacles. Like, there's so many times in swag.com where it could have been, it could have failed. I mean We, went, we lived through a pandemic. Just, I mean, think about the swag industry during a pandemic. There's no events, there's no trade shows, there's no offices. Who needs swag? And yet, when the industry dropped 40 percent, our business grew 100 percent. How was that possible? It's because we pivoted and we changed and we figured out what our customers actually needed. Oh, if everyone's remote, why don't we build out an amazing, robust swag distribution platform to send swag to remote employees' addresses to keep the company culture thriving? If you're not going to do a holiday event, use that money to engage your remote team. You're not going to a trade show? Send swag to your best customers. If you'll have the addresses of your customers, create tools to capture those addresses. Like Every single thing became a challenge and you just can't be like, oh, woe is me. And I think a lot of people get into that mindset of when things are great, everyone has that confidence and that ego when things are not great. It's not my fault. somebody else's fault. Right. And, and I just, I think as a real entrepreneur, you have to, it's all you. It's like, whether you succeed or fail, it's, it's on you. You have to make it right. You have to fix it. You have to figure it out. And, and I just, having that mentality will get you so much farther in life. I think.
0: Yeah. The locus of control, the quicker you can get it to yourself, the quicker you have power. Mm-hmm. I think when people are pointing at others, they're, they're giving them all the power mm-hmm. and they're waiting for permission. And, Sounds like you don't ask for permission, Jeremy. So you said your dad had some success. Would you consider yourself, like with the exit, a first-generation wealth builder or you a second-generation guy?
1: It's a good question. You know, I don't want to say, I mean, am I self-made? I think I'm self-made. But at the end of the day, I was also fortunate to have a family who, you know, I, I didn't have to pay for college right? Like, I, I, I'm not, i I'm not naive to think that I had it lucky in some aspects of my life, for sure. I, I had a loving household. I had great role models. I had a great family. So I was already starting in a great position. Did, as an entrepreneur, you're building something from the beginning. Did my dad have any experience in the swag industry? No. Did he ha- come up with the business idea? Did he build the site? Did he have any- Absolutely not. No, nothing. But so, you, you, And that's why I think I removed my ego because it's, it's like, yeah, I could, I could, I could appreciate that I've been fortunate, right? And I also appreciate that I built it myself. You're allowed to feel that. It wasn't like nothing was given to me, but I, but I, I have had a fortunate upbringing. So yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how to quantify it, but I think, I think, you know, I, I think, I would say I'm self-made to this degree, to this level. But I, I obviously, you know, was lucky and had a great family as well. I think you had a good
0: start. If, if I. Based on what you shared, I would say you're a first-generation wealth creator, and I don't know how wealthy your father is or your parents are, um, but it's for me, it's tied to did you continue the family business, something yeah. that was already started and grow it? You think Gary Vee, you think mm-hmm. some of these other guys out here who help grow their family thing, and they might leave and go start their own thing, but they still mm-hmm. started in the family mm-hmm. thing and helped grow it, and that's not what you did. You yeah, went no, out no. on your own, especially after the pivot.
1: My dad's. Oh. My dad's a real estate guy, so it's totally, totally different world. I just, I don't know.
0: Did you put any in, in any of the deals? Since you, <laughs> you No, nothing, cash now?
1: I'm so what? safe right now. I'm nothing at this point. I'm like, I just want to push the boundaries for swag and swag space and the business, and and I'll look at that investment stuff in, in a little bit. But I, I'm betting on myself at this point. Like, obviously, I, I'm in the market, right? You gotta, you gotta let the market play, but. I'm not really focused on it. I'm focused on myself. I'm focused on growth. I'm focused on, I have the biggest, to me, I believe in myself that if I'm going to make the most money, it's going to be because of betting on myself. That's, that's really, especially I'm, I'm young guy, I'm relatively young. So I feel like I've, I've a lot of money making years ahead and I should focus on that.
0: Yeah. You can move the needle more in your business than investing in somebody else's.
1: Totally. I
0: think that makes a lot of sense. Did you... And so you said you didn't have anybody really help you guys with swag. How did you get into the conversation with the choir? And I guess the other question I like to ask is, did you, did the first person that you talked to close? Cause it usually doesn't happen that way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So we, we became like some somewhat known, very known, frankly, in our industry, in this, in the promotional product industry, because we were on the, the Inc 500 for two years in a row. And it's very rare for any promotional product swag company to make the Inc. 500 at all. For your audience, Inc. 500 is the 500 fastest growing companies, privately held companies. And we did two years in a row. And we were, so we were all like in the promotional product industry news. And Custom Inc., who ended up buying us, was one of the first ones, I think the first one to reach out to us and have those conversations. It was more about getting to know each other. It wasn't about like, hey, we want to buy you. Is more about like, hey, you're doing some cool stuff. We'd love to learn about what you guys are doing. More of a conversation. And we got to know them. Over the course of the year that we've been talking to Custom Inc. before it got acquired, we had about seven other companies, frankly, reach out to us, like unprovoked, not with the banker, just knowing about us, seeing about us, and probably doing the math in their head and saying, swag.com is doing 30 million in sales this year. If we wait any longer, they're probably going to price us out. We're probably going to be able to buy them. So I think that's probably the mentality. That's why everybody was like four of the big players in the space, people in different industries who were like promotional adjacent, and they all came at the same time. But we felt getting to know the customing team that they were the right partners for us because we saw a long term vision. It wasn't just the money. It was well, if we're going to take equity in the company, we have to believe in the in the in the acquirer's business that so we can help them grow and and take their business to the next level, and just getting to know. Custom Inc., they're the leader in the consumer, you know, with branded, especially apparel. You know, they're like 80% apparel. We were the direct opposite. We were majority hard goods, like notebooks, pens, mugs, et cetera, And we did apparel. So it was like our, our product mix was flipped. That was the number one. Number two, they're focused more on consumer. We're focused solely on businesses. So our fig- figuring is what if an order happens at Custom Inc and happens at swag.com and it both hits, hits this operational back end? Like, we could get massive scale like right off the bat. I mean, they're doing $500, $600 million a year in revenue, right? Like, what if we had their buying power? We could bring down all of our costs, make way more margin. Like, what if we synergize everything? Like every aspect of business that they figured out, what if we could skip 10 years because they figured it out and just like plug into their system? So it just made sense long term. And Custom make is a private company. So it gave us that upside of, well, what can we build together? And then maybe, Take it public one day, or you know, have an exit at that point.
0: So it's interesting. You said we were on the Inc. Five Thousand or Five Hundred. Yeah, but that doesn't just happen, no. right? Like, how'd you know that that was a list worth being on?
1: Totally, totally. You know, it's, I think I've always known. You know, when you start as being an entrepreneur, that's kind of the aspirational list. It's like unbelievable. It's like you see the Inc. Magazine and, and young entrepreneurs. I know myself. I used to read Inc. magazine a lot. And every year they would come out to Inc. 5,000, and it was like, "Wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be on this 5,000 fastest-growing companies in the U.S.?" It sounds like unbelievable. And then they have the Inc. 500, which is the top 500 of those 5,000. It's Like that would be amazing. So whenever we we were growing, we're like, "You well, know, we might be able to get on the list this year." And then when we applied, we found out we were number like 300 or number something crazy. I should get the exact number, but we were like we we're like top half of the Inc. or top 250, 240. I think we we're 218 on the first year. It's like this is unbelievable. And then you read, well, the odds that you're going to become on the Inc. 500 two years in a row is so rare because that means you need to have that kind of growth rate back to back to back to back. And then the next year we were like 368 and we're like, we made the ink 500 again. By the way, if we did not get acquired, we would have made the ink 500 for the third year in a row. But because we were part of the custom Inc., we're no longer a independent startup. So they wouldn't allow us to be on the list, even though we had that growth rate. that could It should have, should have gotten us for three years in a row, which is insanely rare. So that was kind of like a, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to have some wins along the road where like you want to you know, have some confidence win. building wins. And frankly, it was more for my team than for me. It was like my team, this is going great, to feel great for the team. Like They're building something without them. This is not possible. They're getting this recognition that they're one of the fastest 500 going companies. This is like unbelievable. So we kept applying for them and it, it actually it, you know, it makes the team feel a lot, very cohesive because it brings people together Around the shared mission and that confidence of like what could we build together if we work hard, so
0: did you keep the cap table relatively clean, or did you yep. let people get equity at certain?:
1: we, uh, we raised a little bit, but you know we raised less than four million dollars all in, so we were never like this company, which is a lot of money still, but we did it at like a hundred thousand, four hundred thousand million, but you look at companies that we were doing the revenue that we were doing they were raising you know 30 40 million dollars and so we we said we never want to raise more than 4 million so i think we ended up raising like 3 million 800,000 and obviously the sales price was way more than that in terms of multiples so,
0: so did you do that for growth like what was yep. allowing you to grow that fast cuz there's a lot of people who end up on the 5000 list who aren't profitable yep. Yep. right they're just you yeah. hack and hacking growth with ads, but they're paying more to acquire yeah. a customer than a customer's paying. Like, yeah. how'd you make that part work? Because I think that's secret sauce yeah. there.
1: We were, we were profitable. Our business is, is frankly a great business. One of the reasons why I started it, we don't hold inventory at all. So we get paid upfront from customers. And once we get paid, then we work with the supplier and they print it and do it. So we collect the money upfront and then we owe our suppliers like net 30, net 60 days. So we have unbelievable cash flow. Like every time we make a sale, we know we're making money. And if we don't sell a product, it's totally fine. We're not holding on to it. We don't own it. You know, we're partnered up with a lot of different suppliers who do that. So it was great cash flow. So we were very profitable from early on. Everything we made in profit, we invested in the technology. That was our biggest expense. We kept pumping, pumping money into our platform. We want to make it so effortless to buy swag, find what you're looking for, design it, buy it, warehouse it, make individual distributions. Everything is from this one central e-commerce experience that is like next-gen, best platform in the industry. That was our secret sauce and what differentiated us. Like we figured that the industry is $20 billion industry and everyone's doing sales the old school way, back and forth emails, phone calls to close sales, catalogs, presentation decks. What if we could allow people to check out in seconds, literally seconds? And we knew it was going to work because frankly, the first year of business, my co-founder and I, Josh, we did it the old school way to learn what not to do and how to improve it. And we did about three three 350,000 of sales the first year manually, the old school. And we saw how hard it was. It was about like 20% of our time was focused on selling. 80% was focused on the bullshit, frankly. It was like the back and forth emails, the quoting, the changing things, the create invoices, the collecting money, paying the supply. It was just like mayhem. And we figured out what if we could build a solution that streamlines all of it. And our second year business, with the same team, we did 1.1 million with much less work. Right, It was like uh-huh. 350,000 to 1.1 million with much less work. And then the next year, we did 3 million. Next year, we did 7 million. And we kept growing with, with much less work. And we're like, this is really automated. This is streamlined. Impossible to do this without the technology. So we kept investing and reinvesting everything. And that's a big reason why Custom Inc. wanted to buy us because they, they looked at us as like the innovator and the leader and that we're ahead of the curve and we're allowing it for customers, business buyers specifically, buy swag, warehouse swag, distribute swag, and all the above.
0: Did you have an actual CTO? Because I see a lot of people who are in e-commerce and they don't believe they're running a tech company. But yeah. your words oh, say totally. it's very clear.
1: Totally, um, yeah. We have a CTO. Lexi, been with us for over four and a half years at this point. I'm CEO, but I'm also head of product. So how it works is I work with our designer, Steven, designing all the features, the whole user experience. And then I work with our CTO and we actually build out the feature set. So, it's a very small, tight knit group. We don't have tons of people, tons of input. It's literally me and Steven design it. I work with Alexi, our CTO, to build it. And we're 100% a tech company. Like most e commerce people don't necessarily need a CTO because they're using a Shopify plugin, right? Like we're building completely from the ground up a lot of tools, a lot of tech, frankly, because our products are not just selling a t shirt, like, it's customization. And that adds a big element, a very complex, right? Like there could be, a five-color print versus a two-color print. They're different pricing. There could be a 1,000 versus a 100. It's, it's dynamic pricing based on the quantity. There could be a logo on the front and the back, which is different than a logo on the front and the sleeve. There could be embroidery, sewing of stuff, or screen printing, or laser engraving. All these different elements affect the price. So you have to build a fully dynamic pricing algorithm based on every single product. And we have 7,000 products in our catalog. So there's a lot and that's just the product that's, that's beyond the uploading and the mocking it up and making sure the print is the exact right size or the Pantone colors is Coca-Cola red, not Staples red. Like, There's so much that goes into allowing people to purchase swag specifically for a business. And then you factor in when they buy it, it either gets sent to their office or it gets held in our 3PL warehouse and then giving them the tools to manage that inventory in real time. There's, there's like layers to it. So yeah, we're, we're, I believe we're 100% a tech company and that's how we've been treating it from the start.
0: Did that have a big impact on your valuations? Because I feel like totally. you got a premium.
1: It, it had to. Yeah, we had. We, and, we, and we wouldn't have sold for less than that. We, we, in our mind, we are a tech company and we invest in tech. So we, wouldn't, we didn't want to be valued as a promotional product company like everyone else. Because we're that not the same was thing. A lot lower. Yeah. A lot lower. We're not the same. And, and, and our acquirer realized that. And that was one of the main reasons why they acquired this in general. They, they knew the value of the tech and, and, and of our platform. Wow. All
0: right, Jeremy. So two more questions, man, to wrap this bad boy up. The first one is who else should we have on the show?
1: Ooh. It's, who's
0: who's had a big exit that yeah, I, I there, tells the story well?
1: Yeah, there, there's a guy who's actually very close friends with my brother. My brother went to Harvard Business School. Amazingly smart guy. My brother's best friend, this guy, Ellie Portnoy, is unbelievable entrepreneur. I believe he worked at Amazon for a period of time. Then he went to Harvard Business School. And he sold two companies since Harvard Business School. So to have back-to-back companies exit, it's like he's hitting 100. He's batting 100. And they're both in very different things, very technical, very nice guy, super thoughtful. I think you guys should reach out to him.
0: Ellie, we're, we're coming for you, brother. Jeremy said you're the guy. All right, Jeremy, final question for you, man. What's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from the episode?
1: Yeah, I think in general, I, I mean, I assume your audience is is entrepreneurs or people who sure. want to start a the business. And yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, when I was younger, you know, had the fear of failure, and 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 that that honestly is a famous quote. It's like fear of failure kills more dreams, like the fear of failure, because more dreams of failure ever could. And you get into this mindset of like, I don't want to launch something because it might not be perfect, or I have to make it exactly right. And when you launch something, it's never going to be right. Just have the mentality that I'm going to launch something and it's not going to be right. But if you have the mentality of learning from it and pivoting and changing and making it work, you're always going to be successful. So like now I have no fear whatsoever. I'm going to launch something. I'm building this new startup I can't get into yet called Swag Space underneath Custom Inc and Swag.com. It's a big idea. It's a huge idea. I'm, I'm, I'm swinging for the fences with this one. right? And I'm confident it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, and I assume it won't work from day one, I'm going to learn. I'm going to pivot. I'm going to learn from customers and, and change the attitude and focus on something different. And I'm going to make it work. I, I have the confidence to make that happen. So I think every entrepreneur has to take that mindset. You're going to figure it out. And I just think take the first step. Don't don't second guess yourself. I think that's the main thing.
0: And Jeremy, this has been awesome, man. You didn't disappoint for sure, bro. I, I'd love to see a picture of your bike at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. If the listeners have any other questions or want to learn more about Swag Space or what you're doing at Swag.com, what's the best way for them to do? Find out more. Yeah,
1: please reach out to me, Jeremy at Swag.com or reach out to me on LinkedIn, Jeremy Parker. You can easily find me. Beautiful.
0: To the listeners, if you want to have a conversation about your eight-figure exit, please reach out. Hit me at Jerome at dromeyers.co. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. Thanks again, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.